Welcome to Supex Radio, a talk show devoted to startup and early stage entrepreneurship, angel and venture investing, technology, and small businesses in general. You can find Supex Radio in the iTunes store and on SoundCloud by searching for Supex Radio. That's S-U-P-X Radio. Also, remember to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Supex. That's at T-H-E-S-U-P-X. And please mark your calendars because we're going to have Supex, the Startup Expo, uh, this summer, uh, Thursday, July 26th, at the Broward Convention Center again in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, We expect 1,000 to 1,500 attendees again this year, and we'll talk a little bit more about Supex later on in today's broadcast with our guest. And that leads us to that our guest is my friend and angel investor extraordinaire, Marsha Dawood. Marsha is an entrepreneur and investor who is involved in a variety of capacities in several angel groups. Uh, She runs two funds with a focus on female entrepreneurs, and she's also on the board of the Angel Capital Association. We'll talk with Marsha today about better angel investing, female-focused funds, and her her new fund, MindShift Capital. Marsha, thanks so much for taking the time to be our guest today. Thanks for having me, Bob. So we have a lot to talk about, but I I always think it's important for our audience to know a little bit more about our guests. So before we talk about your career in investing, What's your background and what did you do before you got into angel investing? Sure. So, yeah, investing in early stage companies certainly wasn't something I thought I would get into. But when you look up across the backgrounds of the people that are in this industry, it's very diverse, which is great for entrepreneurs because we all kind of bring something different to the table. Um, But I worked at Kaplan Education for over 16 years, and I had a lot of different types of roles there. So for the first 10 years, I was pretty much in sales and marketing that whole time. Then I moved into operations, compliance, and in my last role, I was the VP of Career Services, placing over 12,000 graduates. And a lot of the roles that I had, they were either at a local level and then moved up to a regional level, moved up to a national level. And when I was... Uh, working there pretty much a lot of the time I was living in Pittsburgh, even though after probably the first four or five years, I was traveling quite a bit. And But having the, the ties to Pittsburgh, I got to be a member of an angel group that was local to the area. And, and uh, that's kind of how I started to learn about it. And then I was, I was pretty hooked after that. And this was uh, Blue Tree was the first. Is this the Pittsburgh group that you're involved in at yes. the time? Yeah, yeah. And that's Catherine yeah. Mott, who's a really fantastic woman. She is, yes. So, yeah, at Blue Tree, I started there as an investor, and then I just got more and more involved. I started working with diligence and education, especially since I had the Kaplan background for education. I became the chair of the due diligence committee and the education committee. And then, like you said, Catherine is, she is so great. She's done so many things. She founded Blue Tree in 2003, and she's just built it up to be the the premier angel group, really, in Western Pennsylvania. And so I became her partner in for 2016 and 17. uh, And what we did was we were allowing the members to invest in what what's called a like a sidecar fund Mm -hmm. and allow them to have a little bit more diversity in their portfolio. It was an annual thing. So it was just lasted for 16 and then the second one lasted for 17. But it was um, really successful in the sense that the, the investors really liked the idea of being able to put in a little bit of money and get kind of exposure to all the companies that we'd invest in during the year. And usually Blue Tree would do somewhere between six and eight, nine investments a year. So 
can I have an ops background too, and so I can see how the your ops skills could help you run a fund. But how does your operations background influence you as an investor and in how you look at startups and versus if you'd come up say purely as an you know like in the investment management group of a you know a big New York house? How do you think your operations background has influenced you as an investor? Well, I think it's both operations and, you know, all of the other roles that I had. I think all the experiences that you get really throughout the time leading up to being an investor really, really helps. For example, I'm working with a company right now that needs to hire a salesperson and their company's growing. They're doing really well. But the CEO is really nervous to hire this person. You know, it's kind of a one-time shot. If they don't get the right person, they're going to struggle So together we've been working because I have such a strong background in sales and marketing. We worked on a job description. You know, we, I was helping with final interviews and then, you know, afterward we put together a comp plan. So like, those are the kind of things that, you know, from an operational background, you know, just knowing how all of the pieces that have to go into that, you know, in order to have the, the find the right person, be able to go after uh, or set the pr- parameters so that people feel incentivized in order to help the company grow. And when you have a startup company, you have to be scrappy. You can't be giving away the farm, you know, to, uh, you have to have people, you know, have a good incentive program to be able to earn. Yeah. I personally think that hiring people is the scariest thing that anyone can do, <laughs> particularly for a startup. You know, I know that people are focused on market opportunities and the quality of their product and pricing, et cetera. But all a startup or any service business is is a collection of people, and everyone in a startup has an outsized proportion on the effect on the culture. I think it's really, really, really hard to do. Do you agree? It it is hard for sure. And you know, when you have a small a small company, the culture does really matter. If if everybody's not gelling together and and working toward the same goal, and a lot of times when things are moving so fast. You, you hear a lot of times about when companies go from, you know, there's a huge difference going from five employees to 50 employees, and then there's a huge difference going from 50 to 200. So, you know, along the way, you can kind of lose sight of some of the things you need to have in place, employee handbooks and all kinds of stuff like that, that you know, might get overlooked just because the company's moving so fast. But keeping that culture is really, really important. You know, you said that you helped put together a job description. What other coaching or things did you do to help them try to find the right person? I mean, I know everyone does the, okay, we should have, you know, everybody from different areas of the company interview them and then we'll swap thoughts and then we'll go have dinner with them to make sure that, you know, they, you know, don't have a drinking problem or they're at least social, but are there, you know, those are kind of the typical things, but what else did you do and try to gain insight or do you have any tricks that you try to do to help, you know, really recruit better talent or, or I should say, recruit better talent in a better way? So I think that, you know, really the conversation you're, you're, you're evaluating somebody at the very beginning that hello, but you know, in a lot of cases I would just ask people when I would hire in the past or interview, I would just say, tell me about yourself and just let, and sometimes it would make people a little bit uncomfortable. They'd be like, what do you want to know? Well, do you want to know about my personal life or do you want to know about my professional life? And I'd, I'd be like, I just want you to tell me about yourself. And then you could kind of get a sense for what people were wanted to talk about and what was important to them and uh, what they'd tell you about first. And if you had a salesperson who was wanted to tell you every achievement 
that they ever had and how many times they exceeded their sales goal, then you probably want to keep talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a broad question, admittedly, but I'm just curious in any way. So what do you look for when you're analyzing an entrepreneur, you know, as a good startup investment opportunity? Is it, you know, I hear people say, well, I'm betting on the jockey as much as I'm betting on the horse or, you know, is it intellectual property that they've had patented or, you know, it's what, what are some of the, what's the key, the, the ingredients and do you kind of rank them in certain ways? You can. I mean, all startups are going to have the good points and the and the opportunities. Definitely, the looking at the team, like we've been talking about, the the team is so important. Do the founders get along? Do they have the same vision? Do, uh, do they have the right people in place, or or do they have enough people that are needed in order to do whatever it is that they're trying to set out and accomplish? But one of the other things is when you're evaluating what it is that a company is doing, you want to look and make sure that that it's not a solution in search of a problem. So, and what I mean by that is sometimes somebody will come up with a great idea and they, they build a business around it. But if the problem that they're solving just isn't quite painful enough for people to want to switch over to their solution, it, it doesn't get traction and then they you know, a lot of times we'll run out of money or the company just doesn't do as well as they think it can. So that's another thing I'm looking for is, you know, how how sticky is the product? How much are people really going to use it? Or if it's a product or service, whatever it is, you know, what is the user adoption and, and how is it going to grow? How is it going to scale? Reciprocally, you know, based on all your history with so many different angel groups that you've been involved in, yeah, you know, we have a number of investors in the audience, too. What distinguishes a good angel group? I mean, we talk so much on shows like these about the entrepreneurs, but, you know, I've been invited to and participated in angel events before, and there's a pretty broad spectrum of the ones that I would say are more kind of social to the ones that have what I would say are acceptable investment management practices. Mm-hmm. What what do you, what distinguishes a good angel group to you, or, or how do you run yours? <laughs> So many people join angel groups because it's a regional thing or or it's in their local community. So they find that somebody decided that they wanted to kind of band some people together so that they could invest in some early stage companies. And that's kind of how angel groups get formed. And that's great. But when I look at some of the more developed angel groups like Blue Tree, for example, you know, Catherine did an amazing job over the years of just developing the entire ecosystem it is not just about the angel group it can't be it has to be about what technology is going on at your local universities and what things are being built at your local universities from a you know like even life science technology anything like that and then are there incubators or accelerators in your local community that are helping to build these companies and then from there the ecosystem just grows and grows and grows. And that's how angel groups become successful. They can't do it by themselves. It's not like they can just run out and find an entrepreneur who has a great idea, invest in it, and then the next thing's Google. You know, it doesn't work like that. So you know, it really does take a lot of cultivating and, um, and getting to know people. And, and at Blue Tree, a lot of times we would be talking to companies for months, even years sometimes as they were growing before there was ever an investment made because they just weren't at that point yet. You know, they were just bootstrapping or kind of figuring it out or they were still finishing school until they, you know, had something fully developed. 
So it sounds like the connectedness of the board members on the angel group is important so that, you know, they have roots in the community. They know they have a pulse of what's going on in the ecosystem. They have influence on that ecosystem. As an angel investor or, say, a seed series LP, what else should I be looking for in an angel group or a fund if I'm trying to distinguish whether I want to invest in one versus another? Is it who's on the investment committee or is it their due diligence processes or post-investment reporting processes or none of that, all of that? What, what, if I'm an angel group or seed series investor, what, what am I looking for? So all, all of those things are, of course, important. You want to know who's making the decisions and how the decisions are made and what kind of diligence is done and things like that. But I've noticed that people tend to gravitate toward the thing. They want to invest in the things that they care about and they want to be able to talk about it to, you know, their friends and their family. And they, they want something that, that they're passionate about and that they, they like. And so sometimes you know, investing with an angel group is great because you have the social interaction, but of, you know, working in the group. And a lot of times the group members will do diligence. You know, I'm, I'm also a member of Golden Seeds and they are really, they're just famous for their uh, due diligence and, and how good it is. And a lot of times that's, that's from the strength of the membership and the members banding together. So there's that type of component. But if somebody's working or if somebody's interested in a fund, that's usually when they are looking for a little more diversification where um, they can be, you know, they can put up some money, but they get invested into multiple companies as opposed to in an angel group, you're going to maybe write a check and that would only go to one company. So those are some of the differences. And a lot of it just kind of depends. There's a lot of online options nowadays too people can go to. And that's really for somebody who wants to be super passive. They don't really want to get involved in diligence. They just want to maybe look at a company. Hey, that's cool. You know, and I'll invest. And obviously this is all uh, for people who are meeting the accredited investor definition. You brought up an interesting point and I wouldn't mind picking on it for just a second. So you said that Golden Seas' due diligence process, they're very well known for that. What what makes that so special? Well, they they have a process. They've, they've been doing it a long time and they've they've put together some some key elements that to, as guidelines to help the teams that form around the company. And every due diligence team is going to be a little bit different because it all depends on who's interested in that particular deal or, you know, who happens to be, um, you know, kind of in that group at the same time. So by using the tools that they have and the expertise of some of the people who've been with Golden Seeds a little bit longer, um, because they do put, uh, you know, like they call it a deal advisor, um, kind of in charge of that particular uh, due diligence process. There's just a lot of knowledge that's shared and a lot of learning that happens. So it's, it's wonderful for the members. As an entrepreneur, what should I be looking for in an investor or whether that investor be an individual, an angel or a seed series fund? So if you're talking about in like super early stage, like I have an idea and I think this is a great idea and I want to try to pursue it, but I need some money. In that case, you really want to start looking, you know, if you, once you're past friends and family, you want, you want to start looking for people who are passionate about what you're doing. So for example, I'm working with an entrepreneur right now and she's struggling for fundraising, but she has a very science driven product and it is something that a lot of people can't quite wrap their head around. Mm -hmm. And so that 
is tough, but she has found somebody that's helping her that is passionate about the same thing and really kind of gets her. And then once she, once she'll build that up and then once she gets past that point, she'll be in a better place to attract, you know, more like more groups or multiple groups, I guess I should say. Um, so, so you've got that. And then, you know, the other thing is you don't always want to just look for, you know, it isn't always like you're looking for capital. And I know it is hard to raise capital. And I talk to entrepreneurs all the time about the challenges, but you also want to look at what else can, can the um, person or group or fund or whatever it is bring to help me. So is there a network? Uh, are there connections that you can help me with? So that, for example, there's another company that I work with and they really needed some help. Um, and they were, um, a golden seeds company or our golden seeds company. And they, uh, needed some help with introductions in the, um, in the NGO space. So they were able to get that through the network of golden seeds. So now they're, um, they're able to, they're a water bag company and they help with uh, disaster relief. So they're able to get their product out into these areas that they weren't necessarily able to before. So we, you've talked about the uh, due diligence process that Golden Seed, you said, is noteworthy because it leverages the skills and the backgrounds of various members in, in running, say, due diligence for a particular deal, which makes sense. You see that in a lot of angel groups. But what are some other factors or techniques that better angel groups employ or seed series funds in ensuring better returns other than high quality due diligence? So like I was talking about before, like due diligence really does begin at hello. Mm -hmm. Like you, you're trying to figure out, you know, what exactly are the, who are the players? Who's, who is on the team? You've got to do research. You've got to dig into the financials, but it's also getting to know them it's sort of like a marriage. So um, this is a long relationship that you're going to have between the investor and the entrepreneur. So you want to make sure that you really understand the product or the service or whatever their offering is and that you're making sure that you have more conversations and are, are pretty open with each other because I'd much rather have an entrepreneur tell me up front, like, these are my challenges and know that there are things that we can work through than to not say that. And then all of a sudden you find out that there are challenges down the road. And they, they could be easily, you know, they could be some that are pretty easy to overcome. But if after the fact, after we make the investment, then we're finding out things like that, that's, that doesn't work either. So you, you, there has to be like give and take on both sides. Um, and, you know, the, an investor can't always think that the, um, that the investment is going to be like perfect. You know, every every startup has challenges and things that they're working through, and that's why they're trying to scale up. So you just kind of have to work within that. And but at the same time, entrepreneurs have to you know kind of say, "Look, this is what I need." These are and kind of know what their priorities are. Um, yeah. Well, I I think there's sometimes a misconception that all someone's doing when they raise money is just that they're just raising money. And I think your analogy to a marriage is a good one. I mean, what you're really doing is forming a relationship. So your comments about how you answered the question on what you would do to recruit talent and, you know, and how you assisted some of the startups, you're evaluating the relationship. You know, as you said, it's, you know, you're probably three to five years from any sort of exiting or to the, to the next stage of investment, depending on where you came in. And so 
you're going to be with these people a lot. You know, I guess you you know you need to have a, a good comfort level, and that you also need to be comfortable with the that they have the ability to make the introductions that you're looking for in your vertical, um, and that this is going to take time. And so both parties need to be very uh, circumspect about who they're getting ready to start this long relationship. It's not simply I'm getting a hundred thousand dollars from these people or two fifty or five hundred. Right. And entrepreneurs should be very careful about who they let onto their board and who they have as like official advisors, because sometimes you'll see that if a group, you know, they might ask for a board seat and that's fine. That's perfectly fine. But then I, if I were an entrepreneur, I'd be pushing back a little bit to make sure that it was the right fit. Like I got asked a couple of years ago to, to be on a board of a startup company. And after talking to the CEO for a while, I just said to him, you know what? I'm not your person. Like I don't have the skill set that you really need. And we went and found them the right person to be on the board. So I think it's important that um, that entrepreneurs really think about that and think about who is going to bring me the, um, the skill set that I don't have on my team right now or who can open doors for me and things like that that would help my business grow. You bring up an interesting point, perhaps unintentionally. Could you clarify what the difference between is, is someone who's actually a, has a, a board seat versus a board observer? Sure. So if you have a board seat, that means that you have voting power on the board and you can vote for things like if you're going to issue more shares and kind of the direction of how the company's going to grow. If you're a board observer, you have the ability to um, sit in on the meetings. You have a little bit more insight into what's happening in the company. You can help the company, um, but you don't have necessarily voting rights. And sometimes companies do this because they want to have, they'd like to have a bigger board, but when you have a a bigger board, sometimes the it, it can get a little complex. So this way you keep the voting simple, but you can allow for more advisement, essentially. And I'm assuming, do observers participate in all the discussions and just don't vote? Or there's just certain discussions that they're not a participant to because they cannot vote? Uh, it depends. I, uh, I've seen it both ways. But okay. most of the time, most of the time board observers are allowed to participate in most, most things. It sounds like one of the themes that's coming out today is uh, what I would refer to as an alignment. Uh, for angel groups, as an angel investor, you want to be aligned with the kind of uh, vibe of the organization. Is it social or serious in investments? If it's a startup and your angel group or the seed series fund you're bringing in, you want to make sure that there's an alignment of uh, the skills that the investor brings with your needs. Uh, just, just an observation. Um, mm -hmm. you've seen, I don't know, Marsha, you've seen hundreds, if not thousands of startups and you've invested certainly in dozens, if not hundreds. What are some of the more typical problems you see that can be avoided? And we'll just start off with that. So I guess most mistakes or reasons that companies don't make it, it mm -hmm. revolves around money. Either they, they didn't manage the money properly, they didn't anticipate how much they were really going to need, um, or they just didn't get enough traction at the beginning to be attractive to investors. So I've seen companies do some fundraising and, and actually get you know, a pretty good 
amount of capital and then blow through it in a way that really wasn't the best for the business and they didn't make it. And then I've seen other companies that had a really great idea. They couldn't get enough user traction early on. And so they never really got to be, um, to get, they never got to a point where they were going to be investable. So you kind of have to be scrappy and you have to bootstrap at the beginning so that you can get that kind of critical mass that investors are looking for before they'll, they'll write a check. Does that mean that you, so I frequently tell very immature, uh, companies, uh, don't bother trying to raise until you've exhausted, you know, friends and family and worked a day job while doing this at night for a while, because if that group's not going to invest in you, it's unrealistic of you to expect uh, others who don't know you so well to, unless you've got uh, earth altering IP. Do you agree with that to some extent that they need to have shown that before they come with their uh, hat out? Yeah. I, I'm in a lot of cases. I mean, but it really has to do with how how much traction have they gotten, what's the user um, experience, and and how many you know whatever it is that they're they're doing. They're trying to sell a product. They're trying to they have a technology. They're trying to get users or you know something along those lines. But really, you have to be scrappy. Most of the like the really investable businesses I've seen are where the founders have just bootstrapped it until it was really looking very attractive. And at that point too, that's really good for the, for the entrepreneur as well, because they get to keep a bigger percentage of the company. You, so you'd said earlier that, you know, most of the problems you see around money, that they, it's a poor estimation. Uh, you know, they don't uh, figure out the cycle time to go to market or they burn rates higher, et cetera. Does that mean that you should probably raise more money if you're a star, an entrepreneur, then you really think you should because in general, it's not so easy to uh, estimate all that stuff. You will burn more money. Things will take longer. Your adoptions rates will be less. And people typically don't like to go into investor meetings with conservative projections. So just saying you need to raise more money is not the right answer. The right answer is to me as an investor is more like, you need to have the right plan. So when I'm talking to an entrepreneur, I talk about their entire le- the entire life cycle of their fundraising time for their company from the, from today or from the beginning. Maybe it's not today. Maybe it was two years ago mm-hmm. till exit. And I want to know what have they done so far? Have they taken a convertible note? Have they um, raised a price round? Whatever the story is. And then what do they think they're going to need for the next 12 to 18 months, 24 maybe even? What do they think they're – and then what milestones is that going to get them? And then what if they didn't think they needed to raise again? I want to know that the entrepreneur has thought through that whole process. Just coming and saying, I need to raise more money, it, that doesn't help the problem. The problem is around how are you going to grow the company and what does it really take to do that? And that is where you need to surround yourself with advisors. And most of the time I see entrepreneurs really have a strong advisory board first before they go out and raise money from, you know, angel groups or whatever, because those advisors will help them to figure out, well, how is your business really going to grow? How's it going to scale? 
And then you can start to put an entire plan around it instead of just saying, I need to raise more money. Because maybe at the beginning, you don't need to raise more money. Maybe you need to raise more money once you have, you know, hit milestone X, Y, and Z. Do startups focus too much on raising capital, though, and and not enough on getting more customers? Uh, It seems to me like, you know, with Shark Tank and some other things that where you've romanticized fundraising to some extent, and you're a fan of bootstrapping, but you know, bootstrapping, solving problems, meeting customer needs and selling are really where the rubber meets the road or, or am I wrong? No, actually it is, I think a struggle that most entrepreneurs go through, which is I need to work on my business, but, and I need money. So I need to fundraise so that I can get money so I can work on my business, but I can't work on my business till I get the money, but I can't get the, I mean, it's just like, it's like a it's an awful cycle. cycle. Yeah. It's an awful cycle, right? So that's where I think you, you know, the bootstrapping, it really, it does matter. Um, I'm working with a company right now and they took a very like lean startup approach, meaning that if you had, and they're a software company, so they, they had a product, they put it out there. It was kind of clunky, um, wasn't perfect, but at, they, they kind of knew that and they wanted people to use it and kind of try to break it in order to figure out the, to get the feedback mm-hmm. and the feedback that they got, then they would use the feedback. They were, that's all they ever wanted was more feedback, more feedback. And then they'd fix and then they'd fix again and they'd fix again. And, and that, that really built up a great product that now they've turned and are selling on an enterprise level. So, but they would never have been able to have the product as well developed for enterprise if they hadn't gone out and been super scrappy with the, um, with the user base, you know, just at a, at a consumer level. Last question on kind of raising capital in the startup investor relationship. I want to talk about that investor investee relationship. What are the key elements in making that work to maximum effect? We've, we've said it's a relationship and that there needs to be a lot of alignment, a good comfort factor, because you're going to be involved a lot for a while. What else helps that maximize that relationship? Well, we, you know, we've already talked about like being transparent, being transparent up front. Um, and then, you know, just the communication. Some companies are really great about, you know, getting, giving quarterly updates or telling the, um, telling the investors what they, what's happening, what, what they need, what their needs are. Um, and even asking for not necessarily money, but like if they say, Hey, I really need a connection at XYZ company. Do you know anybody? And like kind of putting that out to their investment base, then that can be super helpful. So it, it's a, it's a give and take, you know, they, they can, they certainly can go out and ask for things that they need. Um, and, but that transparency really has to be there. It's the companies that don't give the quarterly updates when they're supposed to or, or aren't very transparent about what's happening or they do a fundraise and they don't tell everybody, which is totally not good. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, that, that, isn't, um, that isn't really realistic. So the best way is just to keep that communication open, be transparent, be honest, and be real. Be, like, you, need, you need to have relationships with your investors too where they know that this is what you need. This you're not going to exit next week. You know, if you made the investment last month, and you, 
you know, you're going to have to um, be realistic about kind of what's going what's, to, what's needed in order to scale the company. Yeah, much better to know about the problem so you can help the, uh, the entrepreneur mm-hmm. solve it than just be blindsided by it when it's too late to fix it. Right. Going out and saying, oh, you know, this is my, uh, my business is doing so terrible now. I need more money. Well, <laughs> investors aren't going to be too happy about that. But if you went out and said, hey, you know, earlier than that, hey, I could use some help getting, you know, uh, in in with the buyer at Cabela or something like that, because you've got something that, you know, that store would want to sell. And then, you know, through the network, you're able to get connections. Um, I just had the I mentioned earlier about the water bag company and uh, uh, what was it when Hurricane Harvey hit? We were able to get her into the, with the uh, the mayor of Houston, and we got her water bags sent to Houston and helped a bunch of the people there. It was a really cool story. That's awesome. So that kind of stuff's neat. So switching gears a little bit, I know that helping female entrepreneurs and investors is a big passion of yours. Uh, how did that come about? Was it a result of a personal negative experience raising money, or is it just a need that you see that you want to kind of step into the breach, but how did you get involved in that? And why is it so important to you? Yeah, well, when I first became a member of Golden Seeds and Golden Seeds is an angel group um, through based uh, really in New York, but there are um, Golden Seeds members all over the country um, and they invest in women led companies. And I hadn't really, they, they're really pioneers because they were one of the first bigger angel groups to, to have this gender lens focus. And I saw just how little funding was going to women-led companies. And, um, you know, studies show that 63% of um, women-founded companies perform better than their male counterparts, but yet they only receive 5% of venture funding. So, you know, there's a lot going on with what women are doing, but they're not getting the venture dollars. And part of that is because there aren't as many female investors as there are um, male. So, and that's growing and, and things are changing and that's all great. Um, in fact, uh, there are more women angels than there are women in venture capital. So, um, and the uh, Angel um, Capital Association, which, um, which I'm a member of the board. <laughs> yeah. Um, we just did a study alongside of Wharton called the American Angel Report, and people can actually go to the ACA's website. It's angelcapitalassociation.org, and they can download the report. And it has a lot of data in there about angels. We were trying to basically figure out what what are angels all about you know where do they come from what are their demographics what you know where do they live what do they like to invest in and things like that and so that report is really interesting showing a lot of different statistics but one of them was that 22 percent of angels are women and that's definitely a significant increase from over you know like 10 years ago um so we're, we're moving in the right direction where we can get more funding to women. And so that really being part of Golden Seeds and seeing the work that they were doing. And then over the last really like three to five years, you've seen a lot more groups and funds um, coming 
to be. And you'll see things like the Jump Fund and Sophia Fund and um, Bell, Michigan. So a lot of these groups that are focused on helping women to raise capital. So what is Next Wave Ventures? I know that's something else that you're involved in. Yeah. So Next Wave Ventures is, it's actually a global movement because Mm. there are parts of it that are in other parts of the world, but, um, and it's to increase women's participation in angel investing really as an asset class. So, um, what that means is that the people who are, uh, LPs in next wave ventures, they are, um, getting a lot of education along the way. So the way that the fund is set up, Um, there are a group of us that are on the investment committee for an impact fund. And it was founded by Alicia Robb, um, with the support of the Kauffman foundation. And Alicia has really been a pioneer in this area. And she is super inclusive in the whole process of like choosing companies, doing due diligence. And she really encourages engagement with the people who are the investors in the fund. And then they get to participate with the entrepreneurs and they get to learn along the way. So it's really like a learning by doing type of structure. So where can people go to learn more about Next Wave? Next Wave Impact, all spelled out, dot com. Okay, cool. And I know you're working on something new. Can you tell us a little bit about MindShift? Yeah. So um, MindShift Capital is focused on post-seed early stage companies in the U.S., Europe, and the Middle East. So a little bit different. And uh, through a global network of venture partners and proprietary deal flow, um, we identify, we're trying to identify scalable technologies and, you know, pretty much exceptional leaders. We are two women um, that are looking to help women uh, who, women-like companies in like this global component. So my partner is in Dubai. Uh, She's lived there for about 12 years. And um, her name's Heather Henyon. And she has very strong understanding of investing in the Middle East and the U.S. And so together, we we have a network that we can really help women-led companies um, find what they need related to scaling, both inside and outside the U.S., and uh, helping with you know, board members, advisors, things like that. And when you say women-led, does it have to be a woman, a woman founder, or can it be oh, there has to be a woman on the C-level? What's the extent of the required involvement of a female in the leadership? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm pretty sure that most of the uh, groups kind of define it the same way Mm -hmm. um, because we've all kind of taken the lead from Golden Seeds, Mm -hmm. which is that we're looking for a woman founder um, and a woman that's on the management team that has some equity in the company. So a little different than if somebody said, oh, I just hired a VP of sales and they're female. And they weren't really a founder or they didn't have much to do with how the company kind of came to be. Um, But, you know, the definition is a a little bit loose just because it can mean a bunch of different things. So, for example, one of the companies that I work with is working on an Alzheimer's drug um, and the scientist is female and she is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's kind of how that definition goes. And in terms of mind shift verticals are there certain verticals in certain verticals out yeah we're we're really looking at technology companies with a primary focus on fintech food tech ed tech and health tech 
So primarily in the U.S. and the Middle East, but we'll also have some venture partners in Europe. And is there a required degree of, say, traction or revenue? Um, yes. Yeah, so we're really hoping to find some companies that are in the post-seed um, stages. They are more a little bit farther along. They have a little more revenue, a little more traction than some of the really early stage companies. And where can I learn more about MindShift? You can go to MindShiftCapital, all one word, dot com. You, we have said earlier that you're on the board of the Angel Capital Association. And uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about what the ACA is and what it does, its mission, that kind of stuff? It's a great organization. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so the Angel Capital Association is actually a trade association. So what that means is that they kind of use um, the all of the angels from around the north around North America, and they bring them together for networking, events, education, syndication. So people become a member of the Angel Capital Association, and then they kind of are in this this little club, basically, mm -hmm. that can help them to learn about the other angel groups that are out there. So I'm a member of the board. There are about 20 of us total on the board, and I chair the membership committee. Um, there's about 260 angel groups that are members in North America, and that is that equals about six or 13,000 individual members. So, um, you know, then the the biggest thing that the ACA does is they put on a summit. And it's pretty popular. Um, this year it's in Boston. It's April 18th through the 20th. There's a lot of great content, kind of something for everybody. If you're a brand new angel or a more experienced angel, everybody comes together. It's a great way to get to meet people. We do showcase entrepreneurs there. Um, and there's uh, usually some educational content prior to the summit and i'm going to be leading uh fundamentals of angel investing which used to be called angel 101 um and that's happening uh on the morning of the 18th of april so in, in addition to having this amazing event that brings together angels from all over the country and gives some startups a great opportunity to pitch do they do advocacy or government relations to try to further legislation that could you know like title three did they get behind that are they involved and in, do they do that kind of stuff or do they do research like the Angel Research Institute does, or do they? Do yes, they've done. They do amazing work when it comes to pub public policy. And Marianne Hudson, who's the executive director, she is going to Washington quite often, and she has some great relationships there. Um, and uh, she's been able to really make some strides when it comes to public policy. It circling back to the expansion of the number of funds that are focused on female entrepreneurs and female founders. What is the ACA doing in that area? So the Angel Capital Association, like I said, is really a place to kind of bring people together, collaboration, syndication. So let's see, it was last year at the summit, um, Foley Hoag, who's one of our sponsors, had they have a, a women's networking reception every year. We were all kind of talking and said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could do something like this all the time, you know, that we could actually see each other and kind of get to know, like, well, what do you like to invest in and what are you doing? And, you know, we all kind of have that gender lens focus, but everybody has a little different twist 
to it. So um, some people are in re- more regionally focused, some people are more nationally focused, some people are sector focused. So, you know, just getting to know each other was really what we wanted to do. So we partnered up with the ACA and a couple of us um, worked with Sarah Dickey, who's, who's the membership director. And we put together a group um, that meets online on a Zoom meeting every month. And uh, really, it's pretty informal right now because it's still in the development phase. But we're able to just get to know each other and find out, well, you know, what are you looking for and what are you looking for? And we share, you know, deal flow and different ideas, best practices. Um, so it's a super way to collaborate. You've been kind enough to chair our SUPEX hashtag Women for Women Forum at SUPEX in July. I'm, I'm not sure that the audience knows, but hashtag Women for Women uh, is a gathering of a large number of angel groups, seed series funds, and VC funds from around the country that are focused on female entrepreneurs and female investors. And we hope to make it the largest gathering of that type this year. And you've been kind enough to chair that. In terms of your participation, what do you hope to accomplish in in a forum like that? Well, much like what I just described with the ACA, I think that the SUPEX Women for Women will be a great place that we can all get together, get to know each other, get to find out, you know, what the what people's focus is. It's really a way to connect both female founders and entrepreneurs with gender lens capital sources. So there will be entrepreneurs there also um, and really educate on the nuances of raising capital. Um, the goal really is to get as many women and men because we do want men involved too. So just when we, because we say we're investing in women-like companies, doesn't mean we don't want men involved because we need everybody to invest in women-like companies. Um, But we want to get together as many people as we can who have this gender lens focus. And we would like to have some of the bigger groups represented as well as some of the smaller funds um, that are up and coming. Because really just the power of the the group and the network is what's going to, um, really bring collaboration together. We start SUPEX off every year with uh, some sort of diversity-focused forum. And two years ago, it was women in entrepreneurship. Last year, it was diversity in entrepreneurship. And this year, it's hashtag women for women. And it's hugely popular. But I have to say that I personally am more excited about this one uh, than any of the ones we've done because I I get tugged on shirt sleeves so often at conferences. Do you know of groups that focus on you know, female entrepreneurs. I have so many women founders asking this question. It, it, it'll be really cool to bring together such a great collection of these people to have networking and exchange of ideas and a couple of cool panels. And I'm really, really excited about it. Yeah, I think it, I'm, I'm excited. I've been talking to some people who are coming and, and we've been starting the planning. So it should be a good one. We are delighted to have you chair it. Uh, we look forward to seeing you there on July 26th. I wish you the best of luck with MindShift Capital. It sounds like a, a really cool vehicle. I like the global focus of it and uh, the fact that you're you know putting your money where your mouth is and uh, supporting so many uh, women entrepreneurs is really neat. Marcia, you're always a great guest. I know you're a super busy person. You just got off the plane. The audience doesn't know this, and you dashed to a hotel to do this. It's so kind of you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and uh, your time with us today. It's, it's very valuable to our audience. No, thanks for having me. It's great.